Hi everyone, this is Hetendra Wadwa and I want to warmly welcome all of you back to Intersections. Today, it is a joy for me to welcome into our midst, Josh Davids. I'm going to present Josh in a couple of minutes. I'm going to introduce him to all of you as well. Let me use this moment then to introduce to you Dr. Josh Davis. He is a neuroscientist, an author, and also a very beloved colleague of mine at Mentora. Josh is um, a PhD from Columbia in psychology and neuroscience uh, with a bachelor's in engineering. Uh, and he's also taught at uh, Barnard in Columbia, as well as at New York University. Josh wrote a book on the very theme that we're going to talk about today, essentially how to get the most out of your life, because it's about how to get the most out of your time. It's called Two Awesome Hours and was an international bestseller on this theme of time management. He has done other writing on themes of leadership and personal growth in publications like Harvard Business Review, Strategy Plus Business, Fast Company, and a few others, as you see here. At Mentora, Josh is our chief scientist. He is a very close collaborator with me and some of our other senior faculty in codifying the principles and the science of human nature and bringing it out in very practical forms for our audiences, both for organizations and individuals who come and sign up for our classes. In addition to his chief scientist role, he is also one of our senior faculty and senior coaches here at Mentora. It is a real joy for me at this point to invite into our midst, Josh Davis. And so Josh, what a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. I am um, delighted to have you here with us. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this. Um, this is a conversation that I've been wanting to have with you for a long time. Uh, you know, we, we have so many other areas of focus and, and there's just so many ways in which uh, what I've done is about is really an intermastery approach to time management. So I'm excited to be here for this. Yeah, welcome. Dr. Davis, you've written this book on time management and you called it something curious. You know, you called it two awesome hours. So why did you pick this theme? What got you intrigued about a topic like time management and something to do with two awesome hours? Yeah. So the way it kind of unfolded was that I was recognizing something, I'm guessing every single person on here has had the same experience, that you can have these mornings, let's say, or an afternoon, we're getting into the park here, you know, which is, uh, I guess, uh, a very American um, phrase, hitting it out of the park refers to baseball. But, uh, but the point is, you're doing amazing work, right? That you're, you just like anything you put your mind to, you're doing it quickly, and it's like really exactly what you need. And then if you're anything like me, you can have three days in a row where you feel like you're worthless. You know, you, you finish the day, at the end of the day, you're just sort of beating yourself up. What did I do? How did I? And, and it didn't seem, it didn't seem right. as it it's me, it was, you know, uh, my friends, family, it's just everybody coming to the end of the day so often and saying, you know, What's wrong with me? Why didn't I do enough? And, and I started to kind of put these two pieces together. And I'm thinking, huh, I have some days that are amazing and some that aren't. What is that? What's, what's the difference? And so uh, because of my background in neuroscience and psychology, I went to the literature and tried to figure out, are there conditions that set up those times when we're really on, when we're really at our best? And there are. Um, there, there's a great deal, actually, that's known about what helps somebody be at their peak mentally. So what I then dug into is, 
you know, what is that? And what it turns out is that if you're just trying to be on all the time, it actually takes you away from being your most productive. But if you're trying to set yourself up for a brief period where you're really showing up for the work that matters, then you can actually on demand start to create these mornings or these afternoons where you are really doing amazing work. So the number two, the reason that I've said two hours and not just you know, one hour or five hours. It's not because you couldn't have five awesome hours with some practice, but because two is something achievable and reasonable for anybody starting today. And so I think it's useful to have that as a target in mind because with just the right kind of planning and some small shifts, you can get there. And, and you know, so have eight awesome hours. Days you only need one awesome hour. But when we start thinking about what's the work that matters, how am I going to make myself the perfect condition for that work, it becomes a whole different ballgame, a whole different idea about how we're trying to approach work. Wow, thank you for that, Josh. So I think what I'm hearing from you is that time in some ways is sacred. The way we approach it and our relationship with it is something that we have to see from a very, you know, almost like deeply sanctified lens, you know, that this is this is a gift, you know, that we've been given and that there is a science on how to make the most of those moments and at the minimum to aspire to make two hours every day be really, really awesome. Uh, although, again, for some of us and in some conditions, it might be eight, it might be, you know, 20, etc. But, you know, and so obviously that's the next step we want to take is to understand what is that science of making those two or more hours awesome. Uh, Josh, so tell me one of the things that I really found insightful in that moment where you came to Colombia and you talked about this time management discipline to my class was when you shared how in a well-intentioned way we sometimes get very swept up by whatever task we are doing and it almost is a sense of pride that we have that we are very immersive in that task that we get very concentrated in that task but that very act of being very concentrated and immersed in a task can be our downfall when it comes to smart time management talk about that yeah. This is really one of the biggest traps that there is. We get, Once we get onto a task, and this is something that I think is one of the bases. Wait. So when one of the things that I think is, is most powerful from neuroscience here is understanding that we really don't have as many opportunities to be deliberate, to be intentional about, intentional about what we're doing as we think. So once we get onto a task, we get into this automatic mode. It's not that you're unthinking, but you are less conscious about so many choices. You're, you're, you're not deciding what to do. You're less aware of the things that are bothering you, for example. You're less aware of other distractions. Sometimes it can be very exciting. Sometimes it's even a flow state. Many times it's simply that you're in a reactive mode, that you might even just be checking email. Well, what's in something occurs to you, oh, I should check on this next thing, or I'm working on a PowerPoint, oh, there's still these pieces to do. That's where your mind goes. And we get into this reactive mode. Once we're in that mode, it's very hard to pull back because there's only a few times when we really tap into our full set of conscious resources during the day. And uh, it's when we come to a crossroads. It's when we have to actually make a deliberate decision. Then consciousness really gets recruited. You actually activate many more of these of these resources in the and sort of pointing towards the front in the prefrontal parts of the brain when you have to be deliberate and conscious and focused in those moments you have the capacity to actually step back and make a deliberate decision but the thing is when you're in the middle of a task you really don't you're not the quite the same person you're operating you're using different principles different different systems in the brain in many ways not entirely but in many ways we have to 
learn to do actually is to do two things to learn to capture these moments i call them decision point to learn to capture them when they do occur so right before you started the task that's the time to actually really step back and say is this the right thing to be doing what is important today what do i want to get out of this day and then choose because once you get started on the wrong task that's where time gets wasted and there's this this thing that happens though and some of you may recognize this where you're feeling unproductive Right? And you just kind of want to push through. You're just like, well, I feel so unproductive. I just, I, I need to get to something. Wasting all this. When you're aware of that feeling, when you're aware of wasting time, that lasts for a matter of minutes. When you start on the wrong task, you can waste hours. I mean, the difference is orders of magnitude. What we have to learn to do is to recognize the preciousness of that moment when you are more aware, when you can be intentional. The other thing that we can do is to build some of these in, to make them more deliberate, to actually schedule ways to do it. And, and so, you know, one thing I can offer is, is uh, you know, literally just stand up, walk down the hall. I call it a no device walk, because if the device is there, you're going to be reactive to something. A no device walk can be for a couple of minutes and, uh, and ask yourself this question, what's important today? That can make all the difference. And when we're in a space like this, like what we're in right now, where everybody is working from home and it's unclear where the boundaries are, workday can start the moment you wake up and finish when you're going to sleep, what's work, what's life, there's constant distractions. It's just sort of who, for many people, there's these expectations have just emerged suddenly that you're always available. Well, if you're working from home and you're always home, you're, you're always available. We're in a position now where we have to be intentional extra careful about taking these decision points because we're going to have to be making so many more decisions about precisely how to use our time than ever before. So that's the essence of what this is about, that piece. Yeah, I, th I think it's just yeah. tremendous insight for all of us. I remember the um, uh, reading recently that in this um, coronavirus time, there has been a 17% increase in the amount of what they call fragmented time that people are experiencing every week. In other words, that we have this Zoom meeting and that Zoom meeting and that Zoom meeting scheduled at specific hours because that's the nature of connecting with people online. You know, whereas if we were in the office, we might organically flow from one meeting to walking to the cubicle of a colleague and starting to talk to them and then, you know, and then checking on with somebody to say, you know, can you can you meet me for, you know, now for a few minutes. But, you know, with, with online, things are a little bit more scheduled. But then you have these fragmentary, like, downtime slots. So um, if there are, in fact, going to be some of those downtime slots, it seems, Josh, that one of the things you're saying is that if you can use those downtime slots to gain more perspective, to step back from the hustle and bustle and the striving to do X and do Y, to just recheck with your core, what is your real purpose here for today? What are the highest priorities you know, for today? Are you getting emotionally or otherwise caught up in the fray of something rather than see the big picture? So then these fragments, these 10, 15 minutes here and there that you get free in between other things are not a waste of time, are not just a doodling of time, but can be strategic reset moments. Does that make sense? Uh, I, I love it. It's uh, perfect for the moment. You, you, you make me think about something you, you speak about frequently, which is setting a positive intention for every event. And... You know, this, this idea of a positive intention, it's a, a micro purpose. What's, what is my purpose here? And, you know, and, and how can I get myself into a space where I believe I can actually you know, work as that, accomplish that? That's kind of what we're talking about in these moments. What is that intention? What is that purpose? You know, another way of looking at it that I might offer is, um, 
you know, we, in addition to what you're sharing, research is very strong that when people have to task switch or when people are telling themselves that they're multitasking, um, they lose a great deal of productivity. Well, in addition to what you're mentioning about the, the, the new nature of work, many people working from home are also frequently task switching between family and work. So there's much more of this task switching happening. Now, I'm saying task switching, some of you might use the phrase multitasking, but research is quite clear that nobody is able to, to focus on two things at once. If your focus has to shift, you're switching tasks, there's time loss, there's some research even shows that 80% of productivity is gone. I mean, there's a, there's a real impact on it, but if we can capture these moments, it can actually make us more productive. If you have to switch, you've just been broken out of the mode. You're no longer in, in reactive mode if you capture that moment. If you step back and say, what is my positive intention for this day? And, and if you give yourself just long enough to remember what that is, you know, this takes me back to everybody has heard from Stephen Covey, the brilliant advice that you have to focus on what's important and not what's urgent. But one thing that, one of the reasons that continues to just be advice for so many people is that it's not easy to do. How do you actually do that? This is how you do that. You capture those moments when you're capable of actually connecting with what's important. Yeah, that's beautiful. You want me to show you, Josh, like what's one of my favorite ways to like gain perspective and step back as you've been, you know, evangelizing to us? Can show I up, visually show it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just this, you know, I just get up from my seat, right? Picking stuff. And I just start walking around, you know, I just start pacing, pacing, pacing. And as I'm pacing, I'm just like clearing my mind. I'm thinking big picture. I'm thinking like, what's like at the depth, you know, of my being right now, of my soul right now, what is it, you know, what is it telling me? So that's one, that's one thing I find really effective, taking like small walks, you know, small little bits of bursts of physical exercise, right? And then uh, the other for me is just to kind of sit, sit still, close my eyes and just kind of like disconnect from the outer noise and seek to connect, you know, with that, uh, that purity of that thing that you and I, we call our inner core, you know, here at Matura. So, uh, so those are two of the habits that I found very helpful for me. What about for you, Josh? Like what are one or two rituals that help you get that, uh, get that perspective, get that regrounding? So for me, there's a, one of them is a walk also, and, and I make sure it's a no device walk. That's a critical distinction. And for me, at least it has to be a no device walk. And, uh, and another is that um, I like to do this thing where I periodically notice what's going on in my mind. It's, a, it's not quite a meditation because it's very much thinking, but uh, I, I just like to ask the question and just be curious, what are the signals that are kind of bubbling up? What are the feelings I'm having right now, the urges? And I just take a moment and I notice them. Um, and usually there's some kind of a, uh, you know, I'm feeling a little stress or a little anxiety or a little excitement or, or who knows what it is, but usually it helps to redirect me pretty quickly to what's important, um, you know, when I just explore that. So that's one of the things that, that I'll do as one of these breaks. There's actually a little story that I, I'd like to share that on this topic, because I think for this one, there's a number of people who may say this makes sense but I'm busy, I have a lot of stuff to do and you're asking me to take more breaks and I just need to power through it. I know what I need to do, I just need to power through it. And I want to make as strong as case as I can that that is actually a mistake in most cases. There are times when we really do know, but if you know, a brief 30 second decision point can help you say, yes, I am on the right track. But so I was in a position one time where I was on my way to give a, a talk at a big conference. I was gonna have hundreds of people in the audience and. This was a Saturday, the conference was on Monday, and a more senior 
person, a uh, colleague of mine and I, we realized we were going to end up giving the same talk basically at this conference. And we, you know, I being the more junior person had to change my, my talk, my presentation. This is a Saturday. The talk is on Monday. Meanwhile, I'm traveling for work and I'm in a city that's a fun city. And I've I've asked my wife to join me and she's gone to some great pains to be able to be there, to take the time off. It's expensive and so on. So she's there for the weekend. And here I am in this position where suddenly I have to create this whole new presentation. And all I've really got to work with to try to create something new is that, you know, the title and the abstract of it. And, you know, there's just this tremendous pressure. Oh my God, I'm going to need every second. How am I going to make this work? Right. And, and, like make this worthwhile for people and, and what am I going to, you know, and then meanwhile feeling like I really do not want to let my wife down and, and we were so looking forward to this and, you know, so I'm in this position and the first thing I did was to go out for a walk around the city with my wife for a, a couple of hours and to have a nice leisurely lunch with her. And what happened? Now, the stress levels started to reduce. Yeah, it was still on my mind. I knew I had to do it. But what happened was that there were breakthroughs occurring in my mind. As I started to realize what is actually important for me to do here in connection with this audience, what are the messages that I have that really are unique? You know, what is it? And I was able to stay so focused on the purpose of what I was doing because of that. So then I would go back and work, but I didn't want to leave her alone. So I would only have at most a two hour window, often a one hour window over the next day and a half to go back and do some focused work. And because I then had that break, it forced me in this, this position where my mind immediately automatically started going to this place of what is important here. And the work that I did was so targeted, was so on point. There was almost no wasted time. When I, you know, afterwards I came up with something extraordinarily creative. What I managed to do was reuse a lot of pre-existing content from other things. People loved the presentation. It was a big hit. It was something I was able to use again and again. I took more decision points in that time than I had in any time prior in my life in a whole week. I did it all in a day and a half. And I really did enjoy the weekend with my wife. She was quite happy to have come. And I came away with something great. The, the more we feel the need to just cram things in, the more important it is to take these decision points. And so I'd just like to offer that. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Josh. It really brings it to life. There's um, a lot of power to how you were able to demonstrate in that uh, capacity to, in a sense, uh, achieve both goals, right? So both uh, be there recreationally, uh, you know, for the family and your wife, and at the same time, do your best work. The one thing I really admire about you, uh, which I want to share with our audience, is that capacity to distill to the essence anything that you are working on in our own work together as we've collaborated at times on putting together presentations and classes and training for our clients or thinking through a complex kind of learning journey for you know a, a, a you know a community of executives for you know for an organization etc I, I really find a lot of uh, you know i have a lot of appreciation for that you know discipline you bring of seeking to simplify it and being able to make those hard calls those hard calls of saying no to a lot of peripheral stuff in order to be able to say a really great yes to the things that truly matter and that itself could be one form of mastering your time isn't it which is to take a good hard look at the peripheral aspects of your life i've always admired people like steve jobs and Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa for the discipline, for example, they had of taking away the decision fatigue or waking up every morning and looking at a full wardrobe to say, okay, what am I going to wear today? What's the, you know, 
what's the attire with which I want to like dress for success today? No, I'm just going to wear my simple white garb, Raj Gandhi, or my blue jeans and you know black, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of like top as 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 Steve Jobs or my you know monastic clothes as a nun, you know, as as Mother Teresa. You know, these aspects of our life that we can just simplify, or aspects of our work that we can simplify, or of a presentation, etc., to get to the essence can sometimes be the big breakthrough, uh, isn't it? Absolutely. There's so much that we can say no to when we know what we're what really matters. And you know, it's uh, what Warren Buffett, I think, didn't he say that uh, uh, success is is saying no to ninety percent of the opportunities that come your way, something like that. I'm probably probably yeah. messing up the quote, but yeah, that was beautiful. In fact, I've been very intrigued about applying this idea even in the way I engage with movies because I've seen how some of the most powerful films to me, you know, are the ones where a lot of stuff has been stripped out, especially at a time like this when big budget and big technology is kind of dominating in, in Hollywood and Bollywood, right? Uh, you find that some of these movies just take all of that out and to create something which is just at the core, the essence of what like the movie is really meant to be about. I remember, for example, uh, what was that one film? It's about this guy and he is in the car and he's having this struggle in a conversation with, with someone friend of his. And then he has another conversation with his wife. And it's kind of going back and forth between do, these two conversations. And the whole time, the whole movie is just shot in that car. There is no other character in the film except those voices on the telephone and he sitting in the car. His is the only face you see besides just the traffic on the road. And it is one of the most compelling films that I watched in recent times. It really grips you and it is so beautiful as a just a window into human nature, even while it was so radically simplified. Is it possible to reduce attention residue from task switching? When you're like switching back and forth, then there is some mental weight and burden and downtime it takes to kind of like get rid of like the previous stuff and get to focus on the new stuff. And is there any science that you're aware of on how people can become more masterful in being able to do better at this kind of, let's not call it multitasking, but let's call it like rapid switching of attention from one thing to another, back to the one, to a third, back to the one, et cetera. Because I'm guessing this is becoming extremely pertinent in today's time where some of us are, for example, you know, full-time working folks with kids at home. And we have the kids no longer now being able to be in school for a while. We also are working from home. And every now and then, our work life is getting interrupted by the need to also be a good parent, you know, to our child and help support them in what they're doing online or just, you know, help them go to the bathroom or whatever, whatever it might be. So this, this um, quick switching back and forth becomes actually a crucial muscle for us to build. What does neuroscience tell us about this, Josh? Yeah, well, so I think we have to get into talking about how quickly, because you, you point out, I think, rightly that some, some switching can't be avoided, uh, especially in the, this work from home scenarios for many people. Now, for some people, work from home actually makes it that there's less switching they need to do if they live by themselves, for example. But these sometimes when we're talking about task switching, um, especially in research, uh, to my knowledge, it's always been about relatively quickly moving back and forth. And we're talking about on the order of seconds. I'm doing this one thing and I'm trying to do this other thing. How much time is lost? How long does it take me to reset, right? And then there's a different kind of switching, which is I'm working for 10 minutes and then I get interrupted with something else and I need to pay attention to that for five minutes. And now I can come back. Now, there is still a switching cost that occurs. And one thing here, I think then, I'm not aware of any research about how to reduce that switching cost. But what we can do is in terms of the residue, there's also sort of an emotional residue or 
a set of urges or feelings of I should be doing this other work, I need to be getting back to this, or framing the interruption as an interruption, as something that's causing you to not do what you need to do and just having the pressure build up. And so what I can offer you there is uh, one thing is to reframe and and you don't have to wait for the moment to do it. You can sort of pre-frame in your mind, have a reappraisal or a reframe uh, of what it means. Let's say if my kids come in, so yeah, there's this, I really wanted to finish this one thing. If I do take 10 seconds and remember what's important to me, that it's about them and it's about doing my work, then it's possible for me to say, okay, here's an opportunity, right? If I've planned ahead for how I can feel that, I can remember that reframe and do it. And another reframe I want to offer you is, and this one is true, this is a decision point. My child, if it's a child who's come in or whatever the interruption is, has just created a decision point for me. My gut instinct was to be angry, is to feel stressed that I'm not getting back to the other thing. But actually a gift has just occurred because I might have been working on something that was not the best use of my time. And you know, this is something that has is very near and dear to me. I've made it a very rich part of how I operate and I can guarantee you at least 50% of the time, I still find myself working on something that's not the best use of my time. So learning to see that as actually a gift can be a nice reframe as well. So so that's some way to let go of some of the emotional residue and be more present. I really, really, really like that, Josh. Thank you. You've raised a very important point, which is about the undercurrent of emotion that actually have a strong impact on the productivity, the attention, the mindfulness, you know, the, the presence, the intention that we can bring to anything and everything we are doing. So let's talk about that for a couple of minutes because I, you know uh, just as much as I that in our work at Mendora, in the teaching that we have out there for organizations and individuals, this aspect of like emotional intelligence and emotional life is so crucial, isn't it? So, um, you know, one observation that I want to share, you know, as a build on what you've just said is that in addition to those decision point moments or those distraction moments where another task suddenly just presents itself to you in doing a certain task itself, we sometimes go through a whole different sequence of emotions from moment to moment. When we read a certain email, when we think about how that member of the audience was just not appreciative of what I said, when we worry about whether the stakeholder is actually going to have the funding in this coronavirus age or whatever it might be. And so there's this kind of like background energy in our mind, which is the emotional undercurrent that is running through as we are superficially paying attention and doing a task, right? And if these emotions are not properly attended to and regulated so that we create the conditions for the best in us to arise in that moment, then we are suffering from a unconscious, invisible cost on the inside, isn't it? Which is that we are really not being able to bring our best to the moment. If you were to calibrate on a zero to 100% scale, how you're doing in every given moment, it could be that in some cases, we are actually working on a presentation or an email or something, but there's a surge of anger, irritation, disappointment, worry, concern, hopelessness, whatever, that is consuming us from the background. And so 70, 80% of our energy is actually caught in that emotional state. Does that make sense neuroscientifically? Absolutely. There is so much energy that goes into two aspects of it. One is uh, anxiety itself can often be draining. It can be energizing in the right context in small amounts, but, but it can also be draining. Uh, but then fighting the emotion. The cognitive control is quite fatiguing. I, I can't feel that. I have to tamp it down. I have to just find a way to, to control myself and focus anyway. And when that internal struggle is occurring, 
there's a great deal of fatigue. And, and this, is, uh, this is one of the other things in the book, one of the other strategies there is to manage your mental energy. And your mental energy is going to have to do with both your fatigue and your emotional energy that's occurring. You know, this, the two are intimately intertwined, as you mentioned, the fatigue aspect of emotions, but emotions themselves also, you know, they drive us to do things. They're there for a reason. They don't happen by accident. And yet there's a well-known phenomenon when anxiety gets too high, we don't think straight. We, we're not actually at our best. But when anxiety is too low, we're also not at our best. So a little bit of anxiety, many of us have learned, actually helps us focus. And it's a strategy that we use to help get us on point. Sometimes anger is a strategy people use to get themselves fired up. But too much of it then makes it hard to think clearly. And there is actually a great deal of research about how to address that. I mean, one of, you know, obviously at Mentora, well, obviously to the two of us, but, but also to, uh, to, to other folks, you know, we've really tapped into the research on cognitive therapy about what really does work for most people. Um, but there are also some things that I can offer that are, I think, very easy to do. These, are, these have to do with, with kind of the mind-body connection, which is something else that I write about in the book, um, which is that... Uh, two simple things you can do. One of them is that most people may not know this. When you become dehydrated, on average, most people will become more irritable and angry, short-tempered. Now, you may notice that this happens to you sometime or happens to other people who you work with sometimes, that you're just not giving as much um, you know, patience to something. Well, if it's been two hours since you had a drink of water, you're probably getting dehydrated. It's as simple as that. Right? We are bodies. We're not computers where the body is the battery. We are a whole biological system. We don't operate like computers in many ways. We can be amazing for short bursts of time and then not amazing, quite the opposite for a long period of time. Computers are the same all the time. So we are brains and bodies. And so starting to take that seriously, what would that mean? Well, have a drink of water every couple of hours. Also, there are sort of these effects of, and this is for me, this is one of my all-time favorites. This just dramatically changed the way that I operate day to day, was learning that there is a reset switch. So let's say you are too anxious or whatever the emotion is that is really getting in the way for you. There is a reset switch. There is a way to actually be able to be present, to feel less of that, to be able to focus more on the positive and the opportunities. And that is a small amount of exercise, 20 minutes of jogging, you know, not, not pushing it too far to the limit that actually has like decreasing returns in the end cognitively. But a little bit, you can use it strategically. It's in completely different relationship with exercise than trying to do it for long-term health, where you might work out hard once or twice on the weekend. This is using it as a strategic tool each day to get you either to start your day so that you are mentally and emotionally where you want to be for the day, or to reset in the middle of the day. Now, Tendra, I'm imagining you're also thinking of meditation as being a a tool for precisely the same thing. And to my knowledge, it can offer the same kind of reset. But but there are these things, these bodily things that we can do that that dramatically shift the emotional energy that we have to allow us to be present. You know, it reminds me of a story from Josh Waitzkin uh, from his book, Art of Learning. He was uh, participating in all these, you know, competitions. And he realized that actually the secret to success in chess was not necessarily just brilliance because you know lots of people had him but it was to be able to sustain that brilliance over the course of a long game and what he noticed is that his game used to drop after a while because his mental state his energy state just couldn't sustain itself and then what he did started to do as an intervention was that after he had made his move 
and now his competitors clock was you know ticking and they were thinking about what move they were going to make rather than just always seek to use that downtime to get more work done by like anticipating what they might do and therefore what I'm going to do, et cetera, which seems like, okay, I've got this free time now because it's the competitor's clock and they are the ones who have to make the move. But let me use this time to get even more advanced thinking in place for the next move. He said, rather than do that, occasionally he would just get, get off from the chessboard and he would go to the stairwell next to that competition room and just run up and down the stairs, just run up and down the stairs. And then he would come back with a new burst of energy. So that's uh, so much the, uh, the point that you, you just made, Josh. I want to read a quote to you from one of Lincoln's very close friends. And I share this because I just want to inspire all of us to the possibilities there are, right, in um, advancing our capabilities in new directions. And so you will see that Joshua Speed, Lincoln's friend here, is remarking on this very challenge of quickly switching back and forth between different tasks that you and I and all of us are facing today. And he says that Joshua Speed says that I marveled at Lincoln's powers of concentration. He had a wonderful faculty in that way. He might be writing an important document, be interrupted in the middle of a sentence, turn his attention to other matters entirely foreign to the subject on which he was engaged and take up his pen and begin where he left off without reading the previous part of the sentence. He could grasp, exhaust and quit any subject with more facility than any man I've ever seen or heard of. And I, I share that because, you know, regardless of where the average of humanity is, you know, we got to look at like the best practitioners out there in any craft as a way to understand and see Perhaps there's more to the plastic nature of the brain and what I can develop. And um, it reminds me a little bit of the work, uh, Josh, of a um, scientist that we've had very much on this show itself, a very exalted um, researcher on the field of uh, meditation, right? Richie Davidson from University of Wisconsin at Madison. And in some of his work and the book he's written with Daniel Goldman, they talk there about, if I recall, I think I'm right about my reference there. They talk there about some of the, some of the evidence that is coming out that this uh, capacity to switch attention back and forth and quickly ramp down and ramp up, ramp down and ramp up is uh, strengthened uh, among people who are doing long-term meditation, right? And it kind of makes sense to me intuitively because what is meditation in some ways, you know, it's a profound question to ask what is meditation, but in some ways it is about taking your mind into a mental gym and making it really build its muscle. And so when you build its muscle in a way that you've never done before, who knows what capacity of a Lincoln-esque kind we might get. Here's a, a quote from op-ed in Washington Post, just you know, taking on this quest for helping us with time management in today's time by Laura Vanderkam. And she says, in more than a dozen years of collecting time logs from thousands of people, I've seen that no matter how busy people are, there is always some discretionary time. I have seen time logs from parents who during normal times were working full-time in remote jobs and homeschooling their children while also making time for hobbies. Working for 40 hours a week and homeschooling for 20 adds up to 60 hours. A week has 168 hours. As for people without caregiving responsibilities, even if they're working like 70 hours a week, which is about the limit, you know, people clock in their time logs. And if they sleep eight hours a night, which is 56 hours per week, that still leaves 42 hours for other things. Now, granted, some of that is just going to be like chores. But I think there's something really powerful in this idea of maintaining a diary and just analyzing how you're spending time and then looking for those for those pockets, you know, where perhaps you could you could do something different. Uh, what do you think about that, Josh? Is there anything that you 
have researched or discovered around the power of just kind of you know creating some kind of like a log or a system of like tracking tracking time well it's it's such a common thing to do in coaching when somebody's challenged in this way is you start let's collect the data and oftentimes you don't need to do any coaching at that point they look at it and they say well, so this is one of the classic things in coaching, right? That somebody presents a challenge like this, you know, where am I going to get the time? And you, you have them do a log for one week and you often don't need to do any coaching. They just look at it and say, oh my God, look at the choices I've made. And also if you can frame them as choices, then it is quite powerful in helping you, in helping you make some, some different choices with the time. Now, the, that's the key thing though, is that it is, as Satendra said, a choice about how you're going to do it. So what I want to suggest, this is something, a kind of a phrase that some people like and some people don't. It's one I kind of tossed in there in the book at one point, which is strategic incompetence. That, that if you embrace the idea, I'm going to do have some things that I'm not going to be the master of. I'm going to have some things that I am going to let go. And it feels so risky. So I want to acknowledge that there is a very big sense of risk if I'm going to let something go. And, you know, one thing that you know, has become more popular, let go, um, but is still terrifying for many people is a lot of their email. So, you know, you can play with this in little ways, but each time you have a little experience of letting something go and seeing what happens, discovering whether you survive it. So I'm not going to uh, respond to this kind of email. I'm not going to join that kind of a meeting. Um, and just doing it for a day or two, a week, you know, discover what happens. Um, at some point, you may even just to, to use the metaphor, the, the example of email uh, a little bit more, you may find yourself being willing to declare email bankruptcy and say anything that's older than two weeks, I'm just going to mark it as having been read. And it's there if I need to search for it, but that's it. And I've just freed myself. So it doesn't, you know, there's so many different tasks that we could approach in that way, but it is a big risk. It's so different from how we may have been operating. And so I encourage you to, to create small experiments to discover what happens and to discover whether you survive, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I think I know what the answer will be, but, I, but it's so raw and, and intense that we do need to actually honor that. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Could you touch on the mindsets and thoughts and beliefs that affect one's relationship with time and with our priorities? Yes, yes. You know, one thing I want to offer, just to get philosophical for a moment, some of you are probably familiar with Albert Einstein's conception of time as being largely a fiction of our imagination, that there essentially has to do with the fact that we age, um, but he considered it as really four dimensions of space. Uh, or he called it space-time, and they're being analogous, you know, and, and that's why if you're moving through space faster, you're moving through time slower, and so on, and, you know, which I won't take the time to go into right now, but this idea of time is so often we just take it and we imagine that it is equal to a certain amount of productivity, and that is simply not true. And this is one of the wonderful things about a human being, about a human brain, is that there is just such a vast range of things that we can do and think and feel. If you think about a dream, you know, you can have uh, an entire lifetime that passes in five seconds and it feels like you went on this amazing journey. The dream lasted for such a short time. Right? The mind can fly through all kinds of things and we can make these, and, you know, so, so time is not actually a great proxy 
for productivity. So that's one different way of thinking about it. So rather than trying to think about what's my time that I have and how do I break it up? How do I, what do I utilize it for? Thinking about what is it that matters to me? How do I connect more with my purpose? What are my emotions? What am I ready for in this moment? How could I change them? How can I connect with what's important to me, who I am, etc. When we're connected with these things, and then we think about tasks, and we think about development, and we think about experiences in life, and we start to organize our life around doing those things and matching it with the energy that we have. It's a different game that we're playing. And time is, yes, you know, I don't want to pretend that we're not all following a clock and that we're not going to each sleep roughly on a 24-hour cycle and that the earth doesn't rotate once every 24 hours. You know, that is happening. But it is really a fiction to, to think that time and productivity are the same. So, you know, this idea that time equals money, that was a, a clever way of saying things when you re were referring to a very manufacturing-based kind of approach. Or if you're a lawyer and you're billing by the 15 minutes, yes, then, then there's a direct connection in that way. But that's, it really shouldn't be taken farther than that. I hope that helps a little bit. I love that. You know, I want to like share an example of how that can apply to relationships. I have found, for example, that um, when I am sometimes feeling very responsible for managing my time, and if I'm interacting with someone, and I want to really move through that efficiently, uh, and this could be someone in my personal life, if I bring in that kind of a rushed and a very time-oriented view to the first few moments, the first few moments of that interaction, sometimes the interaction can go into a downward spiral because the person from the other side was seeking a listening ear, was seeking a patient presence. And I was, meanwhile, seeking to like advance the problem solving you know, that needed to happen between them and me. And instead, if you take the other approach, which is that when you're starting an interaction with someone, you use the first few minutes to, or the first few seconds to just put your agenda aside and just be in the presence of that person and seek to establish a silent common bond. Sometimes that can be done almost instantly because you know that person, you're seeing the facial expressions of the person, you're hearing the tone of the person, and you have these seven different modes in which that person exists, and you know which of those seven this is, and you know this is the moment where you can advance your agenda. But then there are other times when you sense in that moment that this person is in a different place and space from that aspect of the person that you need for your agenda to be pursued. And perhaps there's an opportunity for you to put that aside and just be there for them to celebrate perhaps something that they have just gone through to tune in and check in with them to just listen about something that they're, you know, um, struggling with or something. And once that connection is made, that silent bond is made, often I find that the other party, almost paradoxically, when you thought that, oh my God, now I'm going to have to waste all this time, I have to get so deeply invested, etc. No, just by giving a little bit of that calm, patient, engaged presence, the other person just gives you the license to now completely own the agenda and to do anything and everything on your mind because they just feel validated, they feel connected, their immediate emotional need is met, and now they can be there for you. Well, one thing I hear in that is that, you know, we come in with this preconception about the time things will take, but that's based on expecting it to go a certain way. And if instead we're able to come in with a certain amount of uh, ability to release attachment to a specific agenda we may have or an ability to focus on what really matters in this in this event, uh, in this interaction, right? if we're able to connect with those things, then if there, if there are only three minutes, 
right? Or if they're 30 minutes, you can adjust more effectively to that. Yeah, perfect, perfect. And the thing I wanted to you know, add to that is that, Josh, you to me are one of the exemplars of this practice. You bring a tremendous, very patient and attuned and empathetic presence to any room, to any audience, to any individual. And uh, that centeredness, that calmness, that sense of just kind of like joyful anticipation about what is it that this moment might unfold, the capacity to be quiet and listen and just absorb and draw out the energy of the other person is what makes you, I know, a great faculty, a great coach, a great chief scientist, great colleague, and I'm sure also a great friend and partner at home. So uh, I'm just glad that, you know, we're having this conversation about a best practice, which you are in such a great position to exemplify for us. We're coming to the end of our hour. And I know there's so much more richness to your book than we can do justice to here. And you and I know we also have a class on managing time by managing yourself here in our work at Mentora. So I know there are more resources for our audience to consider in going and double clicking and taking a deeper dive. Maybe we can end with um, this one thing that I found really intriguing as a story in your book. And this was about this executive who worked really, really hard for a very high stakes presentation that they had to do. And they walked into the room and they flopped. That presentation didn't go well. And you think about like all the sacrifice, the toil and the focus they put into it and how they use every little moment, every little fragment of time that they had to get a lot of the extraneous other things done that would have needed and distracted their attention. So they could create these big chunks of time to prepare for this main event. I mean, how could anybody do better than that in the dedication they showed for managing the time, you know, with just great zest and commitment to really prioritize a highly important task? But then they flopped. So what's uh, what's the lesson in that? Lesson in that. So when you're referring to, so he's a, you know, working in the sports company, he's got this great idea to revive this, this, uh, this line that they had in the past. And he has this opportunity to pitch to the C-suite, right? And, and he's come up with so many great ideas. And then he's trying to use his time most efficiently. And this is the error. He's trying to be efficient instead of being effective. He's trying to simply think about time. And so, you know, he's staying up late the night before, fatiguing himself. And then the next morning, he's quickly checking his email to make sure there's no fires. He's quickly trying to respond to things. He's got 15 minutes before the big meeting. Let me just try to take care of this other thing that somebody needed. He ends up, you know, doing things that had he not done them, it would have been okay. He would have been forgiven or it wouldn't have mattered you know, and he's getting stressed out about it. He's making decisions with every little thing that he's doing. And one thing we know about that fatigue that Hitendra referred to before, it's something called decision fatigue, that your prefrontal resources, uh, prefrontal cortex, front of the brain, that's so critical for focused attention. Every time you make a decision or try to engage in self-control, you kind of wear it out a little bit. And, you know, it's like you've been, it's just like you've just gone for for like a long run. You could keep running, but it's hard. You need some more motivation. You know, somebody chasing you, that would get you going, but you need that motivation. And so he's wearing out this ability to make quick decisions and to control himself. And then he walks and then he's like, you know, he's late. He walks right into the meeting and he's not able to be present. He's not able to make those quick decisions, not able to think on his feet. And it's sad because it's, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. He's just thinking about time in terms of how can I pack it all in and be efficient instead of how can I be effective for the stuff that matters. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Josh. 
And uh, on that note, we are going to start to bring our conversation to closure in just the next couple of minutes. Let's end with this quote from, uh, from Elaine, because I think it's just a beautiful little story that she's sharing. She says, I always took the time to say goodbye before leaving for work, even if my son was crying and even if I still had to leave him crying. I think the payback is partly in our close relationship today. What a beautiful testament to the idea of um, just using our time very, very thoughtfully to get the best outcomes and small little, small little gestures, small little rituals, small little disciplines that can give us so much bang for the buck, isn't it, Josh? It's a, a beautiful story to end with. Wonderful. So um, I would love to have you back here, Josh, as well in the imminent future. So thank you for making the time. And I'm grateful for your presence here, Josh. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much.